Insights on Responsible Business is a podcast about organizations building trust, security, and resilience to thrive in an era of stakeholder capitalism. Our host, Sir Rob Wainwright, talks with business leaders and experts about their experiences in charting a new direction towards commercial success and greater societal impact. Our special guest today is Paul Polman, who works to accelerate action by business to achieve the UN Global Goals, which he has helped develop. Paul was the CEO of Unilever from 2009 to 2019, and he is the co-author of the book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Paul has also been described by the Financial Times as a standout CEO of the past decade. Over to you, Rob. Thank you, Vaidehi. Yes, we have a very special guest for this episode. Paul Pullman has been a real trailblazer over the last decade for the notion of responsible business. And it's a very special episode because my interview with Paul was recorded recently at a live responsible business event in Amsterdam. After a year and a half of interviews with 35 business leaders from different sectors, we decided to bring insights on responsible business from the podcast room to the podium for a live event which attracted a large virtual audience. Joining us at the event were many of our former guests for the series who debated notions of leadership, sustainability, digital trust and many other pressing issues for business today. And we ended the show with this live interview I held with Paul who provided a real tour de force of why the moment is now for business to shift to a purpose-led strategy. Take a listen. Paul, welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you again. Thanks so much for your, for your time today. We've just heard in the introduction uh, your fantastic career, your knowledge and experience in this area, um, the way you develop a sustainable living plan for Unilever, contribution to the development of UN Global Goals, the work you're doing now, and you're channeling all that knowledge and experience now in writing, co-writing this book. The message that you're bringing to the business community, Paul, what, what, what sort of message are you hoping to land in writing this book? Well, let me first uh, thank you, uh, Rob, for the opportunity and obviously uh, glad to uh, talk to you. Uh, I was interested uh, and lucky to hear the end of uh, the talk uh, that you just had on AI and the importance of trust, and I could not uh, stress that more. Uh, and I was glad, actually, uh, as we will talk a little bit later, that ethical behavior is one of the drivers of trust. Uh, so is transparency. In fact, uh, what has been shown uh, during COVID is that uh, authentic leaders that are logical, if you want to, that have a good competence and judgment and a high level of empathy that they show that they care for you are the trusted leaders that society... And that's a different kind of leader, right, Paul, that's emerging with, with in terms of this authenticity, maybe showing some vulnerability. We touched on that earlier in this event. Is that a different kind of leadership? It is a different kind of leadership. Some of the basic skills are there, but the leaders of tomorrow are a higher level of empathy and compassion, humanity, humility, mm. strong purpose-driven, multi-generational in thinking, embracing partnership. These are the type of leaders you want to work for. And what we've seen during COVID is a clear bifurcation between companies doing well with these type of leaders mm. and companies being left rudderless or schizophrenic in some extent mm. when these leaderships are not there. But let's get to the topic. I want to thank uh, Deloitte because what you are is an enormous force and that's obviously what interests me. 350,000 professionals, you have 7,000 in the Netherlands operating in 115, 150 countries. You know, you're one of the major forces, not only in your own scope, 
mm. where you're making incredible commitments, but actually in the influence that you can have in creating the leaders of tomorrow, but also more importantly, uh, uh, changing the companies that you actively work with. The commitments you've made with uh, world climate and to decarbonize and put yourself on the 2030 trajectory, which very few companies still do, uh, the leadership that you uh, develop in your company, uh, your world-class ambition, uh, you set yourself where you want to reach 100 million people by 2030 and improving their lives are all commendable things. And yet, all of that is not enough. We need to set the bar higher. We're at the point now that most companies know, most leaders know what needs to be done, but they struggle with the how. And our book entirely focuses on the how. Um, why this is an enormous opportunity now to uh, embrace a more net positive uh, uh, business model to address probably the two biggest issues that we have, which is climate change and uh, inequality. Uh, the book is um, uh, describing a net positive company as one that profits from solving the world's problems, not from creating the world's problems. World Overshoot Day this year, July 29th, which is the day that we use up as many resources as the world can replenish. Every day after that, we're actually stealing from future generations. So being in CSR or less bad, where you find most companies still, yeah. Let's reduce my carbon emission, let's improve my human rights standards is simply not enough anymore. I used to kill 10 people. Now I only kill five people. I'm a better murderer. It just doesn't work. Then people say, I understand that I need to be sustainable, neither good nor bad. But that's like saying it's okay to build a coal factory here and have the people around it lose their life expectancy of at least 12 years versus the rest, as long as I plant a few trees in Africa. Mm. And by the way, it doesn't matter if they cut forests somewhere else. Sustainable is not good enough anymore. You need to think reparative, regenerative, restorative, and this is net positive. And the characteristics of a net positive company are challenging, but they're absolutely needed. One that takes responsibility of its total handprint in society, all consequences intended or not. One that optimizes the return for all of the stakeholders, one that runs a longer term business model and puts purpose at the core, sustainability at the heart of their strategies, one who sees shareholder return as a result of what they do, and certainly a company that is willing to embrace and actively be involved in the broader systems changes that society needs. And this idea of net positive then, Paul, I guess, you know, your fundamental point is that in delivering more than just less bad, as you say, making a more, more active contribution to these really important topics, it is actually not to the detriment, right, of business growth or business success. That's the whole point, I suppose, you, you're making. Net positive is also about that this is a, a successful way, a commercially successful way for businesses to operate. No, I wouldn't even say it is a commercially successful way. It's the only way. I might be even a little bit stronger. Mm. You know, in a world where we are already challenging the planetary boundaries, where we have the climate change, where we are close to negative feedback loops, companies that really understand that, that strive to move in that direction, will be positioned well. The companies that don't, I think, are already heading to the graveyard of dinosaurs. And what we now have, uh, fortunately, uh, Rob, is we have the data. We have the data to prove that uh, if you look at the U.S., uh, purpose-driven companies that put that uh, right at the core of their strategies are outperforming their peers by 56% over the last four years. We see the financial market where 81% of the ESG funds 
are actually outperforming the non-ESG funds. And I think uh, we've seen it in a rude awakening with COVID, where we have spent until now $17 trillion to save lives and livelihoods. Mm. We've lost, according to the IMF, about $27 trillion in global GDP. And people have started to realize that the cost of this inaction is a significantly higher than the cost of action. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see that the financial market has uh, woken up, uh, not only moving from a risk mitigation point of view, but increasingly moving to an opportunity point of view. Well, the narrative sounds very compelling and, and those figures speak for themselves. We still have laggards in the system, do we? I mean, I, I just wonder why this is not just accepted as the norm and, and that we're not a bit further along the path towards, uh, towards the, where we need to be on this. Yeah, that is true. We have, um, obviously, for some companies, it's difficult to have that knowledge. Uh, the world is, uh, lots of the, the companies are SMEs. They might not have the resources, the know-how, mm. the capabilities. So we need to work that. And there is a lot of effort at a global level. Uh, these companies can tie in with value chains of more responsible companies. They can associate themselves with industry associations. Uh, educate themselves with material that's available in the public domain, work with organizations like yourselves, obviously, to accelerate that process. But um, the other reason that we don't see much uh, the progress at the scale and speed that we need is it needs all of us. Someone very wisely once said that the issues uh, that are of such magnitude cannot be solved at the level that these issues are created. So to solve food security, mm. um, climate change, inequality, we need to move the boundaries and we need to make structural changes. And it's outright hard. We need to decarbonize our global society when we're carbon junkies. We need to completely reconfigure our food system, if you want to, uh, which we've never done. And all of that is coming to us at the scale of the mm. uh, industrial revolution and the speed, as you've just heard of the technological revolution. And many people struggle with that. So many things at the same time. And what you now see is because we haven't addressed these issues um, really uh, fast enough, uh, the population, uh, the people at large are getting impatient. They're expressing that dissatisfaction at the polls. Mm. In many countries, you see populists or nationalists or regretfully sometimes xenophobic governments or multilateralism hasn't really evolved. So that's not working either. So our argument is very simple is you need to have business step up, fill that void, help de-risk that political process to then move these broader system changes that are needed. But it's challenging, right? That's the point that you made, um, particularly for some industries, especially to transition to this. Uh, I can imagine that when, when you embarked on this journey um, at Unilever, it took a lot of persistence, persistence, uh, persistence, patience, some time on your side. It wasn't easy, right? It's not as if it was a walk in the park for you. No, it's not uh, easy at all. Otherwise, someone would have done it already for you. But it, uh, it's increasingly um, transparent to all of us that it uh, is the, the best way that we have. 95% of CEOs don't want to go back to where we came from before COVID. And they are right because, frankly, it wasn't working either. Um, we were uh, on an unabated course for climate change. We were destroying biodiversity. Inequality was going up. So people want to use this opportunity now that we are used to spending a little bit more money mm. to ensure that we build back better and create this greener, more inclusive economy. Obviously, there's a few in the fasted order who want to maintain the status quo. 
or are rather being pushed and being proactive in that. But this book is really about the majority of the companies where people struggle with what type of leadership do we need to have? What, how do I embed a purpose in our companies? How do I get going by identifying my handprint and uh, commitments that I need to make? How do I work in my industry or across industries and ultimately in these broader alliances? And most importantly, how am I doing this consistently? We have a chapter in our book that we call the elephants in the room, uh, where we talk about, uh, you know, tax or corruption or CEO salaries, money in politics, yeah. trade associations advocating yeah. different things than what you stand for. So how can we be consistent in all of this? Because that consistency ultimately builds that trust that you need with all your other stakeholders to succeed. Okay, so it's about leadership. We've talked about that, about recognizing where the trend is, is heading. But you also mentioned, I think, Paul, um, a few minutes ago, that it's also, we require more systemic change, that it's more than just individual companies. There's something far more systemic here at the heart of our challenge. What do you mean by that? Well, as I briefly mentioned, um, we politics has become so short term and frankly many of the businesses are run short term with a focus on shareholder primacy and you simply can't help, uh, solve the issues of climate change or inequality or biodiversity loss with that shorter term horizon um, politics really runs from cycle to cycle now and as a result they often will focus on the symptoms and barely take time to go to the underlying causes so what we now need to do, which is in the interest of all of us, is rally together. Because as you say, it's not easy to, for example, decarbonize a global economy. And um, if you still have, uh, for example, uh, 600 billion of perforce subsidies in governments that push you in the wrong direction, is we still see that equal amounts of money in the recuperation plans, uh, recovery plans after COVID went to the fossil fuel or old industry versus the new industry, then you can see that at the political level, we still have a major problem. Just like we have a problem when only 6% of the vaccines go to the emerging market and the, the developed markets have already 70, 75% been vaccinated. So business actually increasingly sees that this affects their business models, their way of operating, their opportunities to be successful longer term and, and are willing to get together and set uh, more ambitious targets. With uh, Glasgow, where we just uh, were, we had initiated a uh, broad initiative called Race to Zero and Race to Zero Breakthrough, where we look at the high abatement, high emission industries like steel or shipping or airlines, aluminum. And we find now in all of these industries, coalitions of uh, 15, 20%, sometimes more of the companies that are willing to make commitments to be net zero by 2050 and aggressive commitments to half their emissions by 2030. If those industries can do it, that sends an enormous signal to the politicians to change their mindset that this is not a trade-off between climate change and economic growth, but that this actually is probably the biggest economic opportunity uh, that we have this century. And uh, that courage will be needed to get the companies, uh, sorry, the countries themselves into higher ambition. So that's a positive outcome from Glasgow, from COP26. What, were your overall, what was your overall take, Paul, on the outcome of COP26? Because maybe a mixed response uh, amongst those that, that were following it closely. How did you see it close up? Well, I, I might be biased because I was running around there for two weeks, but it is a mixed outcome. And in fact, we should not be satisfied because we haven't 
agreed the firm plan she had to get to one and a half degrees. But that was never really the plan of Glasgow. We had to manage ambitions. Mm. An article before Glasgow into Fortune magazine, I think it was, to really uh, put the expectations right so that we would not be uh, victims of our own um, uh, expectations, if you want to. Mm. Glasgow overall exceeded on the political level, believe it or not, but fell far short on the scientific level. Let me explain. At the political level, we actually got a commitment from all of the countries to um, to the 1.5 degrees. Mm. We um, got for the first time a recognition that coal, a fossil and methane are actually causing the climate change and need to be mitigated. We got the rule book agreed, which is really mm. important to create the carbon market and to reward natural capital. We actually got all countries to agree for the first time to have a uh, uh, inclusion of um, nature-based solutions, which you know is 30% of the problem, but also 30% of the solution. We got a commitment from all the countries to um, review the targets again a year from now, instead of five years from now, which would be way too far away. So uh, the methane commitment, by the way, of 30% reduction, which you know is 100 times more potent than CO2, was probably one of the biggest breakthroughs. That commitment alone is more emission than combined airlines, shipping, cars, etc. So we shouldn't underestimate what has been achieved. I think before Paris, we were heading to four degrees. Paris bent that curve to about three degrees. It is fair to say that Glasgow bent it to two degrees. But this is an exponential problem. Mm. In one and a half degrees and two degrees is a huge difference. So where did we fall short? Global solidarity. We still don't really have meaningful support for the emerging markets on the 100 billion climate fund. Mm. We still don't have really a commitment from the developed countries on loss and damage. Mm. We still really don't have a firm a plan for most of the countries for commitments between now and 2030, where we know we have to really cut emissions by half already. Otherwise, we simply don't get there. So there is some work to do. There is, uh, uh, and that work has started. In fact, uh, I immediately flew to the United uh, uh, Arab Emirates, where uh, Mariam, the minister now for environment, is mm. in charge. And she's outstanding. Mm. And uh, we have the COP in Egypt and then the COP in the UAE. So we need to be sure that we prepare for that and uh, create a mechanism that uh, holds people to accountability. My final point, be because I forgot this, but we should not underestimate the importance of having launched a sustainable standard board as well in uh, Glasgow, which is obviously for this audience interesting. So finally, we're putting a mechanism in place of, um, of reporting uh, that also will help with the uh, transparency and trust we talked about previously. Well, it sounds like quite a lot of positive outcomes. Um, as you say, managing the, the, the expectations especially. Let's go back to the subject of, of, of the role of business um, in, in, in following a more purpose-led agenda. We talked a lot about the responsibilities on leaders. I have a, poll, I have a question from, from the audience. A very good question, actually. Talk about leaders. What about the responsibilities or the opportunities for employees of, of large companies? What role do they have on this agenda, do you think? Well, they have a tremendous role to play, but I have to be honest, if the leadership, the fish starts rotting from the, from the head, mm. is a tough expression that you might have picked up already, Rob, from living there. But, um, you know, you need to get the leadership behind it. There are so many companies now where the employees are ahead of their leadership. In fact, I just saw a poll in the US that 80% of leaders felt they had a purpose-driven business model, mm. but only 20% of the employees said that the leaders were living it. 
Mm. You see a great example with climate change. We're coming out of Glasgow, where some companies in America made tremendous commitments, but then they have their trade associations lobby like the Dickens to defeat the infrastructure bill because it's associated with a small tax increase. Mm. So uh, when pressure comes and choices have to be made uh, and companies gravitate back towards shareholders and do the special dividends or the share buybacks, or when they gravitate back to an, uh, an additional bonus for an employee who already, uh, sorry, a CEO who's already earning too much, then employees lose their trust. The CEOs are getting pressure to change, probably most importantly, from the financial market now. Half of the world's money signed up for the Glasgow Financial Alliance on net zero, mm. over $130 trillion, making a commitment to be net zero by 2050. And financial markets are moving. They're getting pressure from the consumers who are increasingly choosing the products. They're actually getting pressure from um, the, uh, the uh, other uh, competitors that are moving and being more successful. They're increasingly getting pressure, surprisingly, from their own employees or their own children. The fact that you now have walkouts mm. every week nearly in companies mm. or opt-outs where people simply don't want to go back to companies anymore is quite a serious phenomenon. Mm. Although people will talk about climate change and uh, cybersecurity risk, mm. the number one risk that um, CEOs identify is risk of talent right now. Yeah. And that's directly related to your business models and how you make them come alive. Yeah, and if you turn that around to the positive, Paul, I guess if, you, if you're setting your course much more around a purpose-led agenda, then it become, becomes, becomes a talent magnet, I suppose. It's, you, it's easier to attract the best people in the market and, and indeed to, to retain them. I, I guess there's, there's enough evidence out there of that happening as well. Totally, Rob, and I don't want to uh, blow the Unilever trumpets because that's not the purpose of this talk. There's a bigger picture there. But when we moved to the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, uh, it took us a while, but we became the number one employer in most markets yeah. that we were measuring it. We were attracting 2 million people every year to our company, the third highest after Google and Apple. We didn't understand mm. that either. But most importantly, our engagement scores, which were measured against the benchmark of 8,000 companies, went from the bottom of the middle tercile uh, when we started to the top of the top tercile. Mm. I believe with the financial market explaining that to them and increasingly being able to link that to value creation is very powerful. We now have the hard data that shows that um, it directly correlates with performance, just like a more diverse board or a more diverse organization directly relates to performance, not surprisingly. Well, my daughter works for Unilever and she's very proud to do so and, and not least because she talk, talks to me about the purpose-led agenda, the values that, that you have now. So I'll give you some positive feedback there, there Paul, of what you did at, at Unilever. Listen, we've got about eight minutes, eight to nine minutes to go before I have to wrap this up, Paul. A lot of business leaders, others from our community here, listening to you today. You're a wealth of experience. The call to action here now, we've explored many of these topics, but what is the simple message that you'd like to bring to the many people who are tuning into this interview? Well, the simple message probably is first and foremost, it's an enormous opportunity. I, I don't approach this from a scarcity point of view. Unilever, during my 10-year tenure, had a 300% shareholder return was outgrowing its competitors uh, every year on top and bottom line. Um, so I don't think that this is something that will short circuit the shareholder. Point number one is opportunity. Point number two is it starts with personal leadership. 
uh, it takes courage to assume uh, total responsibility for your handprint in society, not only your footprint. It takes courage to set targets that are needed, not targets you can get away with. It takes courage to work in partnerships where you're not always in charge and might have to hear the more uh, inconvenient truths. And yes, it takes courage to actually work on these broader systems changes which aren't that easy and at times might expose you. So it starts with leadership. And then we need to form these uh, transformative partnerships. And my final message is, as you do all of that, be consistent in what you all do. This is not cherry picking. This is not like, let's celebrate what I do very well here, but forget about this. Uh, if you do it all holistically well and integrate it, as we describe in the book, I think you're positioning your companies very well in the future. And we have ample example of that with other companies beyond Unilever that we mentioned. And this is a rare book, to be honest, because most books are written by consultants or academics, and I don't want to belittle that, but this is really the first book that comprehensively is written by someone who ran a major multinational that's publicly traded and for a 10-year period of time. Yes, yeah, so you talked about the call to, call to action and, and the story in your book or the advice in, in, in your book. Is it how is it resonating? Is it, is it landing uniformly well in, in across all industries, all geographies? Do you see certain trends here where the message is cutting through better or indeed um, not so good in certain industries? What is the picture? Uh, what does it look like to you? Well, we've seen a tremendous shift. When, when COVID came, people said, well, we'll go back to the old behavior of the financial crisis of cost cutting, uh, governments not being able to commit to climate change, uh, because they have to spend their money on healthcare. And the overwhelming opinion from anybody who was interviewing me on televisions and other things was, you must be out of your mind thinking that ESG will accelerate. Mm. In fact, many of them thought he must be from the Netherlands, so he must be smoking pot, you know, just to <laughs> jokes the smoke. But uh, it's actually the opposite is mm. true. What we have seen over the last 18 months is instead of 20% of countries committing to net zero on climate, we now have uh, 65% of countries, 90% of emissions. We have half the world's capital. We have uh, f the 500 biggest companies have made climate commitments. We have 20% of the companies in every industry making science-based targets commitments. Commitments. So there's a, been a humongous shift in this short period of time, despite COVID. You and, say despite uh, COVID, uh, Paul. Sorry to interrupt. You say despite COVID. Is it because of COVID? Is there something about what we all felt during COVID in, in our communities, in our families, but also across the business community. Is there something about that that somehow kick-started an awareness around the ESG agenda? Well, I hope it does, All right, but, but that still has to be proven on a longer-term basis. Um, first of all, COVID, as you see in the Netherlands now, regretfully, it's going to be with us for a long period of time, and people really need to adjust their habits. And the moral debate right now is that the ones that don't want to vaccinate themselves do they have the right uh, claiming freedom to hold back the other 80% now uh, of their own freedom? Uh, that's a very important debate. And putting lives and livelihoods at risk still by not taking the vaccination really drags this out and risks further mutations and all that. So governments have a real choice to make now and need to be in front of people, not sheepishly hiding behind some of, mm. of the political uh, you know, bargaining or are looking at their own self-interest. And we're at a crucial moment here in that respect. What COVID has shown us is two things, uh, Rob, that I think are uh, of importance is 
The first one that comes to mind is uh, it has shown us that you can't have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. Mm -hmm. For the first time, the interrelationships between biodiversity, biodiversity destruction, human health, climate change, the racial dimensions, inequality are now there. COVID has put a magnifying glass on the shortcomings. And the second thing related to that is actually um, that uh, the costs of this uh, of this unsustainable uh, form of capitalism is now significantly higher than what we would need to invest to avoid these issues in the first place. I talked about the 17 trillion that we have spent to save lives and livelihoods, the 27 trillion that we have lost in GDP for this decade, infinitely more than it will cost to implement the sustainable development goals. Now, the positive thing of COVID is we've shown that with technology and cooperation, we can react fast, get a vaccine in a record period of time, focus the minds and and hopefully bring these issues under control. Uh, that same needs to now happen with climate change. Uh, Glasgow was the first uh, starting shot of that. I think we've made some progress, but not yet uh, near enough to where we need to be. So are we able now to come out of this and do the right thing? Really is in each of us to answer, each of us in positions of power. Are we willing to accelerate what we're doing with companies? There is no company yet that really truly can call themselves net positive. And we are still fairly selective in uh, the commitments we make. Only um, less than 20% of companies make commitments beyond scope one and two. Of those companies, less than 20% have commitments between now and 2030. Mm. So let's not kid ourselves. We know what needs to be done. We're all making the noises. And now the world is watching if we can put these noises into action. If not, we'll disengage indeed our employees. In not, if not, we disengage our consumers if you want to, but more importantly, we've fallen short of the moral standards that the world holds us to. And we don't want to fall short for our children and generations to come. I think it's an important point that you make, Paul. The, the, you know, it was quite extraordinary, actually, the way in which the world responded with some unity, actually, and togetherness to uh, the, the crisis of the pandemic and how the business community in pretty rapid time did step up, or large parts of it, in a way that it hasn't on climate, right? And climate has been a crisis for some decades, I guess. But COVID, the impact, the immediate impact of COVID seemed to have a more profound effect. The tragedy of the horizons on climate, like Mark Carney said, I suppose. Right. But, but, but the horizon is, is coming nearer, isn't it? So it's, it's kind of the same imperative now. Now, there are two things. We always underestimate the speed of technology mm. and technology is going much faster. In 2014, the International Energy Agency was saying wind and solar would be five cents per kilowatt hour in 2050. We actually achieved that in 2020, 30 years earlier. And now it's already, I was in the Middle East, one and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Mm. We underestimate the speed of technology, but we overestimate how much time we have. Mm. Humans, unfortunately, as we've seen with COVID, cannot think exponential and climate change is an exponential issue. So uh, even though we have seen 90% of the investments last year going into green energy for expansion, we need to up that by about five times the level currently to stay below one and a half degrees. Even though electric cars are now close to a tipping point versus the combustion engine, 70% of the car companies now committed to only put electric cars on the market by 2030, 2035 we still need to grow 20 times faster the sales of electric cars than we do currently. So this exponential notion yeah. is always where the problem is. And, and we're at a very, in this case, delicate point, if I may say, Rob, 
where most companies feel that they are doing things, they are moving much more than they've ever done before. So they must not be part of the problem anymore, but collectively it doesn't add up. So this is why we need this book, Net Positive. It's by coincidence, perfectly timed. And that's why we need everybody to read it, but not only read it, act on it. And this is what we're really trying to do here. The book is selling extremely well. It's on the number one list of, of most of the things. We've sold 30,000 copies in four weeks time. But more importantly for us is we want to make that the standard, the mindset change. I want to go to a net positive university. I want my company to be net positive. I want to work for a net positive company. And frankly, I wouldn't settle for anything less anymore. Well, that's great. Well, it's good to end on a positive note also in terms of um, the messages of, of your book, the underlying title, Net Positive, right? So it's, it's, it's an underlying positive message that you've shared with us today. Paul, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us today, sharing your, your wealth of experience in, the, in this area. You're a role model for many people. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Be safe and enjoy the holiday season. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to another episode of Insights on Responsible Business. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune into our next episode. Please review us on Spotify, the iTunes podcast app, or whatever popular podcast app you're using. And find out more on Deloitte.nl. See you next time.